Let's pray together once again. And as we go to prayer with the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 1, as our anthem, as our conviction, based on the things we've been singing, based on what we're here to celebrate this morning, Paul says this, and I hope that this is what you agree with, uh, not with a partial heart, not with most of your heart, but with your whole heart, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Are you not ashamed of the gospel this morning? Are you thankful to know Jesus Christ as Savior? Father, as we stand here before you this morning, as we've gathered to celebrate the resurrection of your son, as Scott said earlier, the linchpin, the the pinnacle of our faith, the moment in all of history on which everything hangs. Father, we thank you. We praise you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is a God in heaven, that he loved us enough to rescue us from sin. He loved us enough to send his son. And Jesus, you came and laid down your life, and you took it up again in victory. And that news, that message, Father, simple as it is for us to repeat, simple as it is for us to share, costs you everything, and yet it purchased our salvation. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Father, thank you for those of us here this morning who've already come to grips with that message, who've already repented of our sin. We've trusted Jesus Christ. We know that we are secure in your family now and forever. And Father, I pray that as we turn our attention now to your word, as we dig into the story of the true first Easter Sunday, that you would open all of our hearts, those who believe and those who do not yet alike to receive not what a preacher has to say, but what the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ says to us, that this message, this hope, this redemption is for us all, that there's no life that's too far gone, there's no sin that's too great, there's no road we've traveled too far down in the wrong direction, that you cannot rescue us and save us. And Father, ultimately, as many of us are are beginning to learn as we walk with you, even transform us, conform us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Resurrection Sunday. And Father, the hope that we have because of it. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, as we open our Bibles and seek to open our minds and hearts as well, Father, I pray once again, as we do each Sunday, that you, not I, but you would be our teacher. That your Holy Spirit who dwells in the life of every believer who promises to be present when we gather in the name of Christ, Father, that that he would open up hard hearts. Father, that he would soften hard hearts. Father, that he would comfort broken hearts. Father, that you would satisfy by your Holy Spirit willing and hungry hearts. Father, I pray that as we look at the scripture now that you would guide us in truth, that you would guard us from error. Father, I pray that you would deliver us from all sorts of distractions, the things we carried in with us, the things maybe even even at this moment going on around us or swirling through our mind. I pray that you'll move all that aside. You'll take all of that away so that in these precious moments together on Easter Sunday, we might see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And when we leave in a little while, go into this incredibly beautiful day, Father, May it be rejoicing, not just because spring has sprung, not just because it's Easter, not because of what is yet to come, but because of what has been accomplished by Jesus. Father, we love you. We love your son, Holy Spirit. We love you. We thank you for what you're about to do among us. 
We ask all these things, we pray them in the strong and powerful, wonderful, holy, beautiful name of Jesus. And all God's people said together, loud and proud, amen. 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 You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning. Happy Easter. He is risen. Right on, right on. I want to invite you this morning. Uh, we do Easter as a family service, so we're going to keep uh, the young people with us. And, and boys and girls, we just appreciate the fact that you're here today, and, and hopefully the message will encourage your heart as it does hopefully the rest of us as well. But I want to invite all of us, if you've got a Bible, uh, to turn in it right away and meet me in the Gospel of Mark, once again, chapter 16. All four Gospels, as you know, record the story, as many of you know, the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we've been trekking for the last year and a half through the Gospel of Mark, and it's only fitting, and the Lord worked it out, that we would arrive here today on Easter Sunday at the story of Jesus' resurrection in Mark chapter 16. I'm going to give you a moment to find your way there so that we can all settle in and and read it together, and also because I need to, uh, just to sort of settle my own mind and heart, um, just a little, little, little peek behind the curtain here for a moment, just this is fun, this has nothing to do with anything, but, but you know, I mean, not, nothing ever goes exactly the way you think it's going to go on Easter Sunday or any other Sunday, but we've been having a good service so far, and I don't even know why I'm telling you this, except that I'm, my mind's all in about three different places right now, but I got done with the prayer time, and I went back down, and we were singing the song, and then I reached in to grab my microphone, which I keep under my collar, This is five minutes ago, okay? Five minutes ago, and I can't find it. And so what you need to know is I left during one of those songs, and and, and for for two minutes, the elder chairman and the sound guy were reaching down the back of my shirt, (laughs) fishing the microphone, which had gone in my sleeve. I'm half undressed in the foyer, so forgive me if I seem distracted. Because I don't know what's going on, but we got it out. We've got a microphone. Hopefully, you'll be able to hear me, and hopefully, much more than that, I'll actually have something to say. So, we are in Mark chapter 16. We are looking at the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We want to begin, as always, with the reading of the Word of God, and then look at this remarkable story that many of us know well. Some of us, it may be new, but from which all of us can benefit The story of the true first Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to begin reading in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, and I'm going to read down through verse 8, where this morning, this is what the Word of God says. It says, when the Sabbath was over, that was Saturday, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him, that is, the body of Christ. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, see the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out, the women did, and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You know, I'm a sucker for happy endings. 
I love, love, love stories with happy endings. Truth be told, I'm not much of a movie guy. In fact, I never go to the movies at all. I will go see Star Wars in December. That's it for the year. Because movies just don't do it for me. So typically speaking, I don't go to the movies and I don't watch movies. But as a rule, as a personal conviction and rule, I will not watch a movie that I know for some reason is going to take me through an emotional ringer. Because it's going to display some story of human tragedy or heartbreak or brokenness or or loss. I know some people uh, derive great benefit from those. But as a rule, I don't go to them. Go to movies that I know in some sort of tragic way are going to play with and mess with and even crush my emotions. Because I already know that life is hard. I'm a pastor after all, and they didn't tell me this when I got started, but 20 years ago, I learned very quickly when I stepped into ministry that when you're a pastor, whether you're qualified or not, and can I just say we're all not qualified, but even so, I discovered very, very quickly and been reminded year in and year out that as a pastor, I am given a ringside seat to many people's most tragic, difficult, heartbreaking, sorrowful moments in life, and I don't need any movie to tell me life is hard. And frankly, neither do you, because it is. But like I said, I love happy endings. I love stories that when they're all said and done, they make me cry. And in fact, I've reached an age where I'm not ashamed to cry anymore when I see the happy ending of a movie or a story that I have just watched either on my own or with my family. For instance... I'm no longer ashamed to cry when, as, as, as probably most of us know, Kevin Costner at the end of Field of Dreams, right? He looks across the field and says, want to have a catch? And oh man, every single time, it gets me. It happens again in another Kevin Costner movie, far less well-known, but I love it just as much. A few years ago, McFarland, USA. Anybody see McFarland, USA? Six of us have seen McFarland, USA. He's coaching an upstart ragtag cross-country team, and he fashions them into this incredible machine, and they make it to state. And and at the end of the state meet, when when, when success and failure is hanging in the balance, the the weakest link on the team, the chubby kid on the team, who, who is just everybody else has been carrying him along, suddenly appears around the corner toward the finish line. And Kevin Costner puts his arm around the kid next to him, and he says, that's not Danny Diaz, is it? And once again, right here, it just gets me every single time. It also happens in my all-time favorite movie, Silverado, cowboy movie, when Danny Glover, also starring Kevin Costner, by the way, <laughs> But Danny Glover, the big, rough, tough cowboy, the good guy, he points his Henry rifle at the McKendrick boys, the bad guys. And he says, now I don't want to kill you, and you don't want to be dead. And it gets me right here. (laughs) Again, every single time, because I love happy endings. I love it when the good guys win. I love it when the story finishes well. But I've learned something. In recent years, I've learned something that that fact about me, and maybe it's true of you as well, makes me an aberration in many circles. And if that's the way you think and the way you feel, it makes you an aberration as well, since as Tim Keller notes in his phenomenal book, Loving the City, he says, quote, we live, listen to this, we live in the first era of human history that considers happy endings to be inferior works of art. 
We live in the first era in all of human history that says happy endings aren't the way life really goes. Happy endings aren't as good as sad and difficult and tragic ones. He goes on to explain because, quote, many are certain, many in this life and in our culture are certain that ultimately life is meaningless and that happy endings are misleading at best. They're all right for children's stories, perhaps, but not for reasonable thinking people. But what we know this morning, don't we, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an undeniably happy ending story. In fact, it is, I would submit to you this morning, and this is sort of the seed thought for where we're going to go in the story of the resurrection and God's word this morning. I would say to you that it is, in fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the ultimate happy ending, because I believe with all my heart there's never been a more radical announcement made in all of human history than the one that was given to the women who came to the tomb on Easter morning. When if you look at your Bible again, it says, entering the tomb, Verse 5, they saw a young man sitting at the right. The other Gospels tell us quite clearly he was an angel. He was wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he, the angel, said to them, the women, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus. I know why you're here. I know why you're here. He was crucified, but he is risen. In the original language, it's a one-word exclamatory sentence. Egerethe, he is risen. It was all that needed to be said. He's not here. Behold, if you don't believe me, look at the place where he was laying. It's a happy ending. It's a happy ending. And so what I want to do in this time together and just the remainder of our time this morning here in this story in God's Word is I want to show you why this particular happy ending is not only not an inferior work of art, not only not just a crutch for weak religious people to lean on, but it is, in fact, the most incredible happy ending the world ever has or ever will know. It's a happy ending, and I've got three reasons why from the story that I want to show you. Here goes number one. The first reason that I can say to you with no hesitation whatsoever, with all the confidence in the world, that this is truly the ultimate happy ending story is because, number one, according to the first five verses, it was totally unexpected. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was totally and thoroughly unexpected. You know, if you look at your Bible again with me, what I want to show you is, is that it's almost impossible, truly, from Mark's gospel or any of the others, to overstate the fact that as these three women made their way to the tomb of Jesus Christ early that first Easter Sunday morning, they were not, everybody say, they were not. They were not expecting a resurrection. It's impossible to overstate that fact. In fact, nobody was expecting a resurrection, as demonstrated by the fact that while the women were going to the tomb, who wasn't going to the tomb? The disciples. The guys who should have known. The guys who had been told. And, and the evidence for it in the first few verses is, is undeniable. Look, just beginning, very quickly, we'll walk through it in verse 1. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Not they got up and, and bought him a new set of clothes, brand new white robe, blue sash to put on him so he could go back into Jerusalem looking his Sunday best. That's not what they bought him. They bought spices so that they could anoint him. Anointing is what you did for the dead. It was a final act of preparation and of adoration for someone you cared about who had died. 
Verse 3 says, as they were making their way to the tomb, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Why? Because they expected it to be closed. They had been there, actually. The other gospel authors tell us when Jesus was laid in the tomb, they saw the stone rolled over it. They expected the tomb to still be closed. And when in verse 4 we're told that looking up, look at your Bible again, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although, although it was extremely large, and entering the tomb they saw this young man sitting there. As they saw the stone had been rolled away, if you look at your Bible closely, there was no, in that instance, uh, this, this sort of collective aha moment that said, oh yeah, that's right, we forgot. Why didn't we remember? How could we be so foolish? He did say he was going to rise from the dead. What were we thinking? There's nothing like that going on here. There's no moment of realization simply because the stone's been rolled away. And when verse 5 again says that, that they entered the tomb and saw this young man, this angel, sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed, that word in the original amazed literally means they were knocked senseless. Other translations, your English Bible may say they were alarmed or they were distressed. And I would humbly suggest to you that if they'd expected a resurrection, that's not the way they would have reacted. They would have been comforted. They would have been encouraged. They would have rejoiced. And my point is simply this, that for these three women, despite their faithful presence with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, three and a half years, most of these women, these three, were with him almost literally every step of the way. Despite the fact that they'd been there and they'd walked with him for three and a half years, just as the male disciples had done. And despite the fact that when everybody else scattered, all the other disciples, save for John, scattered, they stayed with him all the way through his suffering, all the way through his crucifixion, all the way through his death, and as I said a moment ago, even through his burial, despite the fact that they'd seen it all, they did not set out on that first Easter Sunday morning looking for or expecting a happy ending at all. Closure, maybe. Happiness, never. See, the idea that Jesus, at least in that moment, the idea that Jesus of Nazareth may have risen from the dead was as ridiculous to them on that morning as if I may say so as it is for some of you here this morning. Because while many of us believe, some of us do not. While probably all of us know the story of Easter, not all of us have accepted the Savior of Easter and put our lives and our faith in him, some of you, and I'm not pointing fingers and naming names because only God knows hearts, but some of you, and I assume this every Sunday morning as you sit here, do not believe in the ridiculous message of the resurrection, that a dead man got up and walked, and that he was the son of God. No, you're here this morning to please your wife. You're here this morning to please your mom. You're here this morning to set an example for the kids. But you don't actually believe all this nonsense about the Son of God taking on human flesh, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, rising from the dead, because that's not possible. You don't believe it. You're here, truth be told, 
Because church is one necessary but perhaps unwelcome stop on the way to Easter Sunday brunch, and that's why you're here and nothing more. And again, I'm not picking a fight. I'm not pointing fingers or naming names. I'm simply saying that that's the case for some of us here today. We have not truly embraced, you have not truly embraced the Savior of Resurrection Sunday. You didn't come looking for a happy ending. But guess what? You're stuck with it now because you did come and you've heard the message, even though it was totally unexpected, just as unexpected for you as it was for the women that first Sunday morning. So the first reason I'm saying to you that this is the ultimate happy ending story is because it was totally unexpected. No one saw it coming, but it doesn't stop there. There's a second reason. As we continue through the story and continue looking at the details of it, we see that the second reason Mark suggests to us or offers to us that this truly is the best happy ending story of all time is because not only, number one, was it totally unexpected, but secondly, and perhaps even more significantly, it was intensely personal. This particular happy ending story was an intensely personal situation. You know, John 3.16, probably the most single, most famous verse in the entire Bible, says that God so loved the what? The The world that he gave us, his one and only son, for our redemption as a sacrifice for sin. God so loved the world that he carried out this plan of salvation. And we believe that, that's true, we know it with all our hearts. But at the same time, what the Bible also makes incredibly clear, what the Gospels make incredibly clear, is though that Jesus Christ died and rose for the sins of the whole world, it is a gift that he accomplished, which each one of us must receive personally. You have to choose whether or not to receive it. I have to choose whether or not to receive it. And that's it. The reason I bring it up is because that's exactly how the story played out here. Because if you continue, actually jump back in at verse 6 in your Bible. Because what we see is that after explaining to the women, after the angel had explained to the women what had happened in verse 6, he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He's been crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold, there's the place where they laid him. Look at what he told them next in verse 7. He said, but go, now go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. Now, at this point in time, Jesus had 11 disciples. He used to have 12. We know, of course, Judas, one of them was a betrayer, a defector. At this point in time, he's dead. Jesus has 11 remaining disciples disciples. And and Peter was one of them. So there's a sense in which when we read verse 7, we ought to ask, why the redundancy? He says, the angel says to the women, go tell his disciples and Peter. Well, I thought Peter was one of the disciples. Well, Peter is one of the disciples. Why do we single out Peter? And the reason the angel singled out Peter, the answer to that question, is because a few nights earlier, Peter had done the unthinkable. Peter had done something Jesus said he was going to do, but he swore he wouldn't do, and that was deny him. Three times. Jesus is taken into custody. The heat is on. It's as bad. It's everybody's worst nightmare, as bad as it could possibly be for Jesus and those disciples. Jesus is gone. Peter gets cornered. Did you know him? Nope. You were with him. Uh Uh-uh. You're one of his disciples. Never knew the man. The Bible says he did so in the manner of taking an oath, swearing before God that he never 
knew Jesus. He denied him despite the fact that he'd walked with him for three years and he'd been the first to actually say, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. They said that was unthinkable, tragic. And, and Peter, we, we have no doubt, though we don't see it in black and white in our Bibles, was crushed. But when the angel in verse 7 says, ladies, go to Galilee, tell his disciples, and Peter, he's going to meet him there. What the angel is doing is he is providing subtle, simple, but quite certain assurance that Peter was going to be forgiven, that Peter was going to be restored, that Jesus was going to meet up with him personally. Everybody say personally. Personally. He's going to meet up with him personally. And you know what he was going to do when they met personally in Galilee? He was going to pour resurrection mercy into his wounded soul. He's going to say, Peter, you're crushed. Peter, you believe you've gone too far. Peter, you think there is no hope. Oh, no, 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 no. Because the power of the resurrection and the resurrected Christ can overcome even three denials. And you know, while Mark doesn't mention it in his gospel, John's account of the resurrection says that right there on Resurrection Sunday morning, Jesus did the same for Mary Magdalene. That he, he came to her in a personal way, though again, he died and risen for the sins of the whole world, that he came to her personally as well for wholly different reasons. In fact, John's gospel tells us that before this encounter with Peter was ever going to happen, and before he's ever going to see his disciples, that Mary Magdalene, who again, had Jesus had, had, had ministered to her, he had rescued her early on in his ministry. She'd been following for him for years. She was actually the first human being to see with her own eyes the resurrected Christ. The chronology is a little bit difficult to put together when you look at the four Gospels, but the essence of the story is this. The women, uh, the angel sends the women back, and either Mary went into town with them and returned, or, or she, she remained in the garden outside the tomb. We're not sure, but whatever the case, we find her in John's Gospel, in the garden, on her knees, overwhelmed with grief. She had come, again, not expecting a resurrection. Now she can't even find the body. And she's wondering, what's going on? What have they done with my Savior? And she's overwhelmed with sorrow. She's overwhelmed with grief. She's overwhelmed with confusion. When John's gospel tells us, Jesus approached her. And he said, woman, by the way, this is free. You might find it interesting. The first word ever spoken by the resurrected Christ. Woman. Woman. Why are you crying? Woman, whom do you seek? And she's trying to put the pieces together and can't understand what's going on. And then he says her name, Mary. She says, Lord, Jesus. And then he commissions her. If you read John's account, I encourage you to do it when you get home if you haven't already. He then immediately after speaking her name commissions Mary as I believe the first official gospel missionary sending her back to the disciples not just with the news he is not here he is risen but I saw him and he lives. She was given that personal privilege because Jesus met her in a personal way. And the story of the Christian faith is from that moment on Jesus continued to do the same one life one man one woman one child at a time. The Gospels tell us he did it for Thomas, Thomas the doubter. Then he did it for others. One day he did it for you. 
One day he did it for me. You realized that God loved the world so much, and hey, I'm part of that world, and he loved me. Enough to send his one and only son for me. He died for my sin. He rose for my salvation. And now I'm going to live for his glory personally. Let me ask you something. How's that not a happy ending, right? How is that not good news? It's the ultimate happy ending. Number one, because it was totally unexpected. Number two, because it was intensely personal. Then third and finally, as we look to verse 8, the third reason that we can confidently say, and I hope you agree this morning, that this is the ultimate happy ending story is because it was, and actually if I could change it, I can't do it right now, but on the third slide here I would say it is, it is undeniably true. The third reason this is the best happy ending story of all is because it is undeniably true. And I don't mean that this morning in a forensic sort of way, in in a scientific sort of way. Now, there is ample evidence, and you don't have to look far, and you don't have to dig hard to realize there is ample scientific empirical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the best explanation for the empty tomb. There's all kinds of resources. If you're interested in that thing, I commend to you. There's a great work. It's free. It's online. It's Simon Greenleaf, Testimony of the Evangelists. You go out there and read it, and it's one of the best collections, compilations of all the empirical evidence that says there is no other reasonable explanation than that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If you want something more contemporary, I'd, I'd recommend the works of Lee Strobel. He was an atheistic investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune for many years, and one day his wife became a Christian, and he thought she'd lost her mind. And then he said, well, I'm an investigative journalist. I'm a lawyer. I'm going to search this thing out. And he got saved. <laughs> in the process, because he realized this story is true. Just a couple years ago, our own Pastor Greg preached a phenomenal Sunday sermon the week after Easter. It's out on the website. I encourage you to go listen to it. Just bringing that down to sort of street level for us, the fact that in a scientific, forensic, empirical way, it is reasonable to say, it is right to say Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But with all that said, that's not what I'm talking about here this morning when I say this is undeniably true. Instead, What I want to affirm with you and for you this morning is the undeniable truth of the resurrection as it is seen in the transformed lives of his followers. The transformed lives of his followers. Just look again at what it says in verse 8. Look at your Bible one more time. Verse 7, the angel gives them their commission. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's alive, that he'll be in Galilee. You're going to see him very, very soon. And then it says this in verse 8. It says, they, the women... They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, that's fascinating. Fascinates me anyway, because time and again throughout Mark's gospel, and if you've, if you've been here with us for the bulk of this study, you've seen me, you've heard me point this out before. Time and again throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus would do a miracle. He'd restore someone's sight, someone who was blind. He'd cast a demon out of someone who was possessed. He'd raise someone from the dead. And he'd do this spectacular miracle in the sight of people. And then you remember what he'd always say after the fact? He'd say, shh, don't tell anybody what I did. 
don't spread the news. Keep it to yourself. And he had his reasons for doing that. But, but so often, he'd do this miracle. and say, Now, don't go out and tell anybody. And then what would they do? They'd go out and tell everybody what he'd done. They'd go tell their friends and their neighbors, and they talk about it with each other, and they couldn't keep it a secret. And the reason I find that fascinating is because here, they do the exact opposite. Jesus says to the women, now, you've seen what you've seen. You've heard what you've heard. Go tell them what just happened. And they didn't. It says, again, according to verse 8, they fled from the tomb. Trembling and astonishment gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. You know what's even more fascinating than that? Or at least it compounds the fascination. Is that that, the end of verse 8, is where many faithful Bible scholars believe Mark's gospel ends. Your Bible may have verses 9 through 20. Mine does, and we're going to talk about them next week. But many, many faithful Bible scholars believe that that's where Mark did, in fact, and meant to end his story of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And, and there's all sorts of reasons and theories and, and, and thoughts as to why he may have done that. But here on this particular Easter Sunday, I'm going to give you my theory, okay, of why, if that's so, Mark chose to end his gospel here with the women who've seen the empty tomb, they've seen the place where he laid, and they can't go out and talk to anybody about it. I think it's intentional. I think it's actually sort of meant by Mark to his readers as some sort of inside joke. Not that the Gospel of Mark has been filled with comedic moments from cover to cover. It's not been that kind of story. What I think Mark's doing here possibly is this, that by ending his entire story of Jesus' life and ministry, death and resurrection, with they went out saying nothing to anyone because they were so afraid, his implication was this. <laughs> but you know how long that lasted, right? <laughs> You know how long they, they stayed that way because it wasn't long at all. Because, you see, Mark's gospel was written within 30 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's nothing, historically speaking. And the reason that's significant is because it means, and we believe it's so, that by the time Mark wrote his gospel, most of the people in the story were still on the planet. They were still around, and, and they were serving Christ, and they were, they were speaking for Christ, and And you could go to them and and ask them what they'd seen and heard. The men and women alike were still here. Men and women who, though here on Easter Sunday morning at first, their lips were firmly sealed. You remember where they were a month and a half later? They were all out on the streets of Jerusalem, the book of Acts tells us. At Pentecost, greatest celebration of the year, a million people in the city, and they're preaching with all their might the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're doing it with great zeal. They're doing it without any fear. They're saying, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And he's changed our lives. And he can change yours. Most of them, by the way, eventually paid for it with their lives. They died for preaching that message that in the immediate aftermath of the empty tomb, they couldn't even begin to speak. And here's what I say. I say, you don't do that to preserve a fable. You don't do that to protect a lie. You don't do that without a single defector based on a misappraisal or understanding of the facts. 
No, you go from silent to vocal, from frightened to fearless, willing to pay with your life for the news that Jesus rose from the dead because you know, because you've become convinced that this happy ending is the real deal and that it still transforms lives today. Now, I don't know what you think about all this happy ending talk this morning, about a God who became a man, about a guy dying on the cross for the sins of the world, about resurrection and empty tombs and eternal life. I don't know what you think about it. You know, God knows, and that's really all that matters. I know that many of us here are here this morning because we love that message, because we treasure that message, because it's changed our lives, and we are not who we used to be. We're here because we believe in Jesus Christ, and we celebrate the resurrection that was settled for many of us a long time ago. But I believe, and I always assume this to be so, that there are some here this morning who do not. And again, I don't know who you are, and I don't need to know who you are, but you know who you are, and you don't yet believe in the glorious good news of the resurrection, the happy ending of Jesus Christ. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. Lots of different possibilities. Maybe as you sit here this morning, you don't believe, you can't handle, you don't follow or agree with all this happy talk because you look around and you say, yeah, that's nice, but that's not how the real world works, right? Because everywhere you look, you see anything but happy endings. You don't see them in your family. You don't see them in your neighborhood. You don't see them in the lives of your friends and your coworkers and your classmates. You certainly don't see it in our country, and you definitely don't see it in our world. Say, where are all these happy endings? Nothing ends happy. It's always hard. And, and because of that, to you, faith is a crutch. And, 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 and your thought is, well, if, if Jesus is the crutch that, that helps you get by, fine, but don't go pushing the happy talk on me. You don't believe because you won't believe. Or perhaps you don't believe because you can't believe. Because you just, whatever, maybe it's just, hey, I don't see how this works for me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the darkness that I have seen and been involved in. You say, I don't believe, I can't believe in happy endings. Here's what I'd say as we bring this to a close. Those are not sufficient reasons to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. In case you missed that, let me say that again. Those are not sufficient reasons to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quite to the contrary, they are the very reasons we should embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. I started this morning by quoting Tim Keller. I'm going to end the same way, where he continues with this notion of the culture we live in and happy endings and all the rest. And he affirms in the same way, he says, in no way is the gospel story of Christ's death and resurrection a sentimental or an escapist story. For indeed, Keller says, the gospel takes evil and loss with utmost seriousness because it says we cannot save ourselves, that nothing short of the death of the very Son of God can save us. 
But the happy ending of the historical resurrection is so enormous that it swallows up even the sorrow of the cross. And here's what I want you to hear if you've heard nothing else today. The gospel is the ultimate story that shows victory coming out of defeat, strength coming out of weakness, life coming out of death, rescue from abandonment. And because it is a true story, it gives us hope. It gives us hope. For in the salvation of Jesus Christ, we learn that the happy ending we long for is not a fairy tale. It's true. And that's why the big idea this Easter Sunday morning is that all who trust Jesus Christ are guaranteed a happy ending. How's that for good news? All who trust in Jesus Christ are guaranteed a happy ending. Probably not today. (laughs) Likely not tomorrow. Maybe not even because of where you are and what you're going through and the, the hand that life has dealt you. Maybe not even this side of heaven, but that's the point. There's another side. There is a heaven. There is an eternity. And one day your life will end just as one day mine will. And the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God to salvation, is that all who trust in Jesus Christ enter into the happy ending that never, ever ends through Christ. So we bow our heads in prayer. I want to invite the worship team to come up. They're going to lead us in one final song. I invite you to bow your heads have our prayer partners down here as well. They will be available, but what I want to do in this moment is, as I said earlier, as we talked about on Friday, give you, give me, give us a moment to slow down, to pause, and not just reflect on, but even respond to what we've heard. Because again, I don't know where your heart is this morning. I believe many, most of us perhaps here this morning, are here because we love Jesus Christ, because his resurrection is our story, because we believe in the happy ending, and we're counting on the happy ending. And for those of us for whom that's the case today, I just want to encourage you as as you take these moments of quiet and then we enter into a final song to, to just once more as we're gathered here together, give him thanks and give him praise. Tell him how much you're looking forward to that reunion, that ultimate happy ending in glory that will go on forever. But I also want to speak again as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, to those of you who are not there yet. And I'm not going to make you do anything. You're not going to stand up. You don't have to raise a hand. You don't have to walk an aisle. But you do have to make a decision. Not because I say so, but because simply it's been set before you. And not deciding is deciding. Not yet is, in this case, a synonym for no. And I wonder, what do you want to do? What will you do this morning with Jesus Christ? I don't know if you came looking for a happy ending, but but God's word, the gospel, offers you this morning a happy ending. It offers you new life now, transformation along the way, glorification, 
either when you die or Jesus Christ returns, which could be any day. And I wonder if that fight is being worked out in your heart right now. Would you, all you have to do, you don't have to repeat a precise prayer. You don't have to to do anything other than simply before the Lord with an honest heart, quietly and sincerely acknowledge the truth. You're a great sinner, just like I am, just like all of us are. But that Jesus is a great Savior. That what he did, dying on the cross and rising from the dead, was done for you. And you say, Lord Jesus, I admit it. I am in the wrong. You are the right. Forgive save, rescue me. That's all there is to it. And I plead with you today, don't leave saying not yet. Not because something bad is going to happen, but I don't know. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow just because I know that moments like this come and go quickly and then we get distracted again and we forget. But Jesus offers today to you his nail-scarred hands, and he says, come take it and follow me. There are people all around this room who once upon a time said yes to Jesus, and we want you to join us. He wants you to join him. So in this moment, do whatever the Spirit of God prompts you to do. As we sing and once we're done, we've got some prayer partners down here. If you need somebody to talk to, ask a question, they'll be here waiting. Ready to answer, ready to help, ready to pray. I want to invite us just as we continue in prayer. Let's just stand where we are right now. I'm going to pray for us, over us, and then we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you that you were faithful to the Father's plan. We're thankful that you, the very Son of God, the one who never did a a wicked thing, never thought a sinful thought, surrounded by endless, limitless, infinite glory, humbled yourself for us. Thank you for walking in this world where we walk. Thank you for bearing the weight of our sin, all of it. Thank you that this morning we can celebrate the fact that your tomb is empty because you rose and you live. Father, I plead with you for the souls of those here today, men, women, children alike, who need to in this moment say, yes, Jesus, I believe. And I thank you for those of us who came to celebrate the fact that you rescued us. you love us so much. Lord Jesus, thank you that you give us Easter Sunday. Thank you for the gift of resurrection and renewal. Thank you for the hope of heaven that we carry with us as we leave this place now. We love you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.